good to be back. Um, we've been traveling a lot recently. Spent the last two weeks outside of Vegas, excuse me. So it's nice to see all of you again. Two weeks ago, we were with friends, though, in Washington State. Went to go see Pastor Mark Young and uh, the Pearlside site out there. So they're building to the place of becoming a fully-fledged church plant. But it was nice to be in Washington. We went as a family. We brought the kids. And we flew out to Seattle. So that was our first time seeing Seattle. See Seattle. Anyway, uh, so we went to see Seattle. Got to do the tourist thing. We went to Pike's Place. Got some Beecher's mac and cheese. There was like some kind of salmon pate, like this pastry thing from a place called, I think it was like Piroshki, Piroshki or something like that. That was bomb, exceptional, really good coffee, good time. Then after that, we drove south, got ready for ministry. I preached at the, pro, at the uh, Pearlside Tacoma meeting the next morning. Then we spent the afternoon with everybody out at the park, just really connecting. And they're building something really great there. Really good, God-honoring relationships forming. Uh, so pray that they'd be able to develop leaders and make disciples and that God would use them to establish something really great out there in Tacoma. After Washington, we left, we came back. We were here in Vegas for three days. We actually started a life group in the mornings. And then after that, we went to Hawaii. So we left the girls with Jerrica, or with my, with my mom, and Jerrica and I went to Hawaii. And so I preached, some of you guys know Pastor Alfredo Canencia at the Pearlside Regal Campus. So I preached out there. And at night, we got to do the vow renewal ceremony for Eric and Marco Nepomuceno. And that was really beautiful. Yeah, you can clap for that. That was an incredible time. We got to honor God and share about Jesus. They had family from New York come down, and that was a blast. Uh, but one thing I appreciated in both Washington and in Hawaii was that we could look at almost any time and just see the ocean. Right? I got spoiled growing up around this, and I didn't know what I had. And so I moved here to the desert, and all I see is an ocean of, ha of sand. I hate sand. It's coarse and it's rough and it's irritating and it gets everywhere. It's a, it's a Star Wars reference. But now we can see the ocean. This is in Seattle. We can see the water behind us and I'm eating seafood and I look and that's where the seafood came from. It's incredible. I love the ocean. I miss the ocean and we'll talk about the ocean one more time before we end today. But why don't we start our time together in God's word with prayer. Would you join me? <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you're here, that you're real, that we can experience you. You're not just some thought or theory or concept, but you are a real person, the God who made this universe. And in spite of how powerful you are, you want to know us personally, relationally, intimately. And God, I pray that you would do that right now. Speak to each of us in the recesses of our heart and teach us how to pray. In your name we pray. So I'm excited to be a part of this series on the book of Acts. And in order to prepare for this sermon, I decided to sit down and just read the beginning of the book of Acts. Because I wanted to get a sense for what the narrative was, what the story was as it was unfolding. I wanted to see what the Holy Spirit was up to as God the Holy Spirit descended to earth for the first time on Pentecost and began to move in his church, how he multiplied, how he moved in power. I wanted to see what the apostles were doing and learn from their example. How are they responding to challenges? How are they rising up in the face of opposition? How are they praying for people and healing the sick? And I also wanted to give myself a lot of options because I knew I would be traveling and I wouldn't have a chance to talk to Pastor Roland. And I didn't know what he was going to preach on. So I needed things to choose from. So anyway, I sit down and I'm reading through the book of Acts. And God's just doing incredible things. So the Holy Spirit comes to earth in Acts chapter 2 and Peter preaches. And thousands of people get saved. 
Then in Acts chapter 3, a lame man who had been paralyzed for most of his life is sitting outside the temple. He's kind of like a local celebrity. And he gets healed and everybody is astounded. And more people come to know Jesus. And they stand up under the face of persecution and interrogation. And then we hit Acts chapter 5. And the tone of the book of Acts changes. And it gets a little different. And I think when we read this passage, you'll see that it's a little different. So, let's read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval, about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Well, that's service. Everybody go home. <laughs> it's a little different. This isn't something we talk about very often. Because when we come to church, we're used to hearing about the love of God. And that's a good thing to talk about. The world needs to hear about the love of God. We're used to hearing about the grace of God, the favor of God, the will of God, the purpose of God. Here in the Every Nation family, we talk about the mission of God, Missio Dei. The mission by which God, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, set about to save all of humanity and creation and reconcile everything to himself. But in God's church, the big C, not just this one around the world, we don't often talk about the fear of God. And when I read this passage, I said to myself, I'm going to read this to everybody, and I'm going to get up there and tell them we should fear God. But what does that even mean? What does it mean to fear God? How are we supposed to fear God? Like, I don't know, man. It was like, oh, no, scary, God. Now let me sing to you. I had heard one pastor say previously that the grace of God saves you, but the fear of God keeps you. Like, wow. I don't know what that means either. And then I've grown up in church, and I heard a lot of times that the fear of the Lord is really reverence and awe. It's talking about revering God and being in awe of God. Like, wow, I, I do think we should revere God and be in awe of God. So I began to research that. And I found that's highly biblical and based heavily on Hebrews chapter 12. But we're not in the book of Hebrews. Hey, does Jesus make coffee? Hebrews. Bang! I'm ready for Father's Day. Yeah. So we're not in the book of Hebrews. We're in the book of Acts. 
So how are we going to talk about the fear of God based on the book of Acts? So I decided, hey, it talks about fear, great fear in Acts chapter 5, verses uh, 5 and 11. I think it's what they are. It's, it's here. It's there. Great fear. Yeah, 5 and 11. So I'm sure that if I just look up in the Greek lexicon what the word fear means, it's going to tell us that it means reverence and awe. And by the end of the service, we'll just be in reverence and awe of God. So I looked it up. I pulled up the interlunar. It's a, it's a tool when the English word is underneath the Greek word that the English word is translated from. And I clicked on the link to tell me what fear is. But as I'm clicking on the link and my mouse is hovering over the Greek word fear, I realize the Greek word for fear used in this passage is phobos. Phobia. Like, wait a second, that's, that's weird. No, phobia must mean reverence and awe, right? And I click that little link, and it says phobos just means fear. As a matter of fact, phobos refers to great fear, great terror. So terrifying that we run in fear of this thing. And the people experiencing this fear is not just those outside the church and who aren't God's children, but it's God's children. In Phobos terror of God. But wait a second. Before this moment and after this moment, people are falling in love with God. People are being healed. People are being saved. People are delivered. People are hearing that Jesus, the Son of God, who is God himself, came down to earth, born of a virgin, took on flesh, humbled himself by obedience to God to the point of death. God loves us. And they're seeing physical, real, supernatural manifestations of God's love for us. And in the middle of all of this, these stories and examples of God's love, fear. And yet there they are right next to each other. So somehow, some way, the fear of God and God's love coexist. But again, that begs the question, how exactly do they coexist? How is it possible that they coexist? Because it's, it's extremely difficult to reconcile these two things in our mind. And that's especially true if one of these things applied to you. If you were subject to strict discipline growing up, I was subject to strict discipline, Ask my mom, what happened if I was one minute late? Strict. And it turned out good for me. But, you know, so Allie and Ashley better not be one minute late. If you had bad experiences with your primary caregivers, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, foster parents, or, unfortunately, if you were subject to abuse, this might be especially difficult for you to put these two things together. But regardless of whether or not one of those three things applied to you or not, it can be hard for all of us to combine these ideas of fearing God and loving God at the same time. And because it's hard to reconcile those two ideas, we can be tempted to lean in one of two directions. First, we can lean toward the fear of God. Oh, congratulations, this side, you just became the fear of God. Just look at the next person next to you and just be afraid. Okay, so we can lean toward the fear of God. And when we lean toward the fear of God, we can start to act in something called legalism. Now, how many of you have heard the word legalism before? I heard a really good definition of legalism by one of my wife's favorite theologians. It's a woman named Felicia Masonheimer of the Verity Podcast. Every woman's a theologian. Me too, because I listen. She described legalism as the attempt to manufacture the fruit of the Spirit without the help of the Spirit. Legalism tells us what to do without telling us why to do it. 
and I grew up, our very first church that I attended growing up as a kid was a little legalistic. So it's a lot of, you need to dress a certain way, and you need to speak a certain way, and you can't listen to certain kinds of music, but you must listen to certain kinds of music, and you shouldn't be talking about this person over there by yourself. You need to be closer to everybody else and be in a group, just because. And the undertone to all of this, do, 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 unintentional, but I guess it is, it's, it's fear. It's obey God or else. Do things this way or else. So in legalism, we overemphasize the fear of God to the exclusion of the love of God. That's what legalism does. On the other side, we can lean too heavily on the love of God. Congratulations to this side. Yeah, you guys are a lot more excited. You just became the love of God. I'm sorry. We're in a Christian service. You have to forgive me. Or else. The love of God is something that we can overemphasize. And when we overemphasize the love of God to the exclusion of the, uh, the fear of God, we end up doing and living in something we can refer to as lawlessness. The theological phrase for lawlessness is antinomianism. Anti, without, or against, nomos, law. Without law. And antinomianism, or lawlessness, is our attempt as people to experience the love of God without making God Lord. So lawlessness says, you know, I know that what God says about this, he says it's wrong. And what I'm doing is wrong or what I'm tempted to do is wrong. However, I'm going to do it anyway. Because God loves me, right? And I'll just go to church on Sunday and ask God for forgiveness and he'll forgive me. I remember when I decided to really commit myself to following Jesus, I was telling my fraternity brothers about this. And one of my brothers told me very happily, hey, dude, I pray. I'm like, you pray? Let's talk about this. I, I know you pray, bro. When do you pray? He's like, well, on Saturday night, I sow my wild oats. And on Sunday night, I pray against the harvest. I'm like, oh, I think you need to pray for forgiveness. And lawlessness is that Willingness to pray for forgiveness, but taking advantage of God's love along the way. So in lawlessness, we overemphasize God's love to the exclusion of the fear of God. And both of these approaches are wrong. We as Christians need to be able to experience both of these things in a healthy way. But again, the question is how? So while I'm preparing this part of the sermon, I'm on the plane <laughs> and we're leaving Hawaii. I'm like, well, I'm stuck here for six hours. Let me just start working on this sermon. So I don't have Google at my disposal, but I do have God. And I ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, guide me in your word on how to reconcile the fear of you and the love of you. And I expanded my search in God's word. And as I expanded my search in God's word, I noticed just a few scriptures up, the apostles interacting with the Jewish ruling council. And the reason why they're ahead of the council is because in Acts chapter 3, they heal the lame man. He was lame, not boring or uncool. He couldn't walk. So they heal this guy and they preach the name of Jesus and people get saved because of the love of God. And the council brings them in and now they're interrogating them. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 18, um, this is what happens. Oh, here, it's, just, it's here. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
So here at this moment, a few moments before the fear of God falls on the church, Peter and John are giving us an example of the fear of God. So while this passage doesn't explicitly mention fearing God, they're showing us what it looks like. That I don't care what the leading authorities among my people say to me, Jesus takes priority. But while it doesn't explicitly mention God's fear, it did remind me of something that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. So here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a pretty good reason to fear God. So what is going on? What is Jesus talking about? And why is he saying this in Matthew chapter 10? So in Matthew 10, Jesus is sending the 12 disciples out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And they're going to tell people that the kingdom of God is here. They're going to tell people about Jesus. They're going to heal the sick. They'll cast out demons. And everybody will be excited and it'll be fun. And in this context, Jesus says, when people interrogate you, don't fear them, fear God. So now we have a direct connection between Matthew 10 and what we're reading in Acts 4 and 5. That's what I saw when I scrolled up. Then I said, let me scroll down and see the context behind this verse. And when I scrolled down, I was stunned. Because I didn't know I would discover exactly what I was looking for in God's word, right there, next to God's, next to the fear of God. Verse 29 through 31 say this. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So not only do the fear of God and the love of God coexist, they are right here next to each other. And in verse 28, Jesus tells us, hey, you need to fear God. But in verses 29 to 31, he tells us how much God values us, about how much God loves us. Let me tell you, I love Jerrica, and I love Ali and Astrid, and I love my mom, and I love all of you. But I don't know how many hairs are on your head. I might know how many hairs are on some of your heads. But the rest of you, I have no idea. I don't know how many hairs are on my head. I don't know how long I'm going to have hairs on my head. But God does. God knows. So intimately and so delicately and so perfectly, so closely, that's how much God loves us. And I sat there in the plane seat, I think row 38, Hawaiian Airlines, about an hour off the island of Oahu, thinking to myself, how is it that we fear God and love him and be loved by him so much? And that's when I came up with this phrase that the fear of God is reserved for those who reject the love of God. Could it be true that the fear of God is reserved for those who reject the love of God? And I do think it's true to an extent. It is true in a sense. Let's use the next two scriptures to tell us how and why. So, verse 32, everyone who acknowledges me before men I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is telling us that the experience of the fear of God is different for those who recognize him as Lord and Savior and those who reject him as Lord and Savior. Because in order to reject Jesus, you must also reject the death of Jesus. Jesus didn't die on the cross for funsies. Who would do that? 
Jesus died on the cross because God's preference is to extend his love. God's preference is to extend his grace. So in one sense, he wants to reserve the fear of him. So he extends love, he extends grace, and in order to extend love and extend, pay the price for our sin that we saved up for ourselves in our sin against God. When our sin damaged our relationship with God and relationship with others and the world that we live in, we incurred a bill. And because God is just, he demands that someone pay the bill. And when we recognize Christ as Savior, we let Jesus pay the bill. But when we reject Jesus as Savior, well, someone's got to pay the bill for us. And that means we have to pay it for them, for ourselves. When we pay that, we're being cut off from God forever. Because hell is complete absence from God and complete absence from all his goodness. That's not what God wants. And that's why Jesus came to make a way when there was no way. There was no other way out. There was no other option. And Jesus came to be the option. That's why he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. If we could get to God by just being good, and just doing nails thrown through his hands and feet? No. There's no other way. No other name given unto men by which we might be saved. Jesus puts out his hands and his feet and says, let me make the way. And he stretches out his arms on the cross. He says, let me bring to the Father. So his preference is to give love and grace. But if we won't accept it, and the fear of God is reserved for those who reject God's love. But what about his children? Do we as God's children get to ignore the fear of God? Because that would be kind of awesome. Then both sides can be the love of God. Does this side want to be the love of God? Okay, cool. Nice. You guys can be the love of God now. I'm sorry. We're just being fair here. So do we, as God's church, as God's people, get to reject the fear of God? Well, no, because when we started reading the Bible today, in Acts chapter 5, great fear came upon the church. So I realized, well, maybe I just preach about something else. Or I could ask God to teach me more. I could ask God to expand my own fear of him, my own understanding of God's fear and what it means to do that. And so that we as a church and as a people could really treasure the fear of God, whatever that means. And that's what I asked God to do. And as I started to look again at the scriptures that I had next to me, I realized that fear can be a good thing. Fear can be a good thing. Now, the thought that led me to this was probably from the Holy Spirit himself. What were the first mentions of the fear of God in the Bible? Because in theology and in the Bible, a lot of times, whenever a concept or a person is introduced for the first time, it's significant. It's like a first impression. First impressions matter. Good handshake, eye contact, that matters. And when God introduces something in scripture, that matters. So I took a list, took a look at the list of scriptures that I had saved before the flight, because I have no internet. And scanning down, I saw that there were a few contenders for the first mention of the fear of God. And the first mention of the fear of God is actually in Genesis, when Abram, uh, brings Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him, and God stops him and says, no, you fear me. And then afterwards, the next two mentions of the fear of God might be in Job and Exodus. Job probably came before Exodus. 
Um, he's not part of the overall narrative of Israel, but he doesn't mention Moses and the Exodus and, and the Israelites and the laws and the tabernacle. So Job probably comes first. But when I read these two things, it's very likely the second and third mention of the fear of God that establish an understanding, a foundational understanding of what it means to fear God. I realized that these two scriptures say almost the exact same thing. Almost as if God wanted us to understand something. So let's read these two things. First we'll read Job, then we'll read Exodus, and we'll talk about both together. Job 28, verse 28 says, And he said to man, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Exodus 20, 29. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So both Job and Moses want us to know that the fear of God keeps us from sin. And that is a good fear. That's good parenting, by the way. Because a parent steps into power, exercises their authority to warn their child from doing something bad. And most of the time, many times, when a parent warns their child, it's to keep them from experiencing pain for or causing pain. We have to warn Astrid all the time, Astrid, be kind to your sister. Astrid is one. Her sister, Allie, is four. She'll be five in a week. But we have to tell the one-year-old to be nice to the five-year-old. So Astrid, be gentle. Thank you, Astrid. Good, Astrid. Because we don't want her to cause pain. Or sometimes we have to tell her, Astrid, stop hitting the TV. We don't want you to knock that down on yourself. Astrid, don't touch that white square on the wall. That's a power outlet. We're warning her, exercising power, to keep her from experiencing greater pain. Does she experience a little bit of pain when we tell her no? Yes. But does a good parent keep her from experiencing greater pain? Yes. And sometimes, in fear, we have to discipline. Discipline in a healthy way, appropriate discipline, is the willingness of a parent to allow their child to experience some pain to keep them from experiencing greater pain or causing greater pain. So if Astrid pulls Ali's hair, she gets time out. If Astrid touches an outlet, she might get a little slap on the hand like, okay, I want to spank you, however, I can't reason with you, and I would rather you feel that than that. And in God's love, he warns us. Warnings like, hey, don't murder. Hey, don't commit adultery. Hey, don't steal. You're going to cause pain. Somebody tried to scam me last night on Facebook. I had a lot of fun with it. It's like, hey, hey, can you draw a picture of a dog to prove that this is your card? Hey, maybe an eagle? Okay, write, write a tag, a piece of paper that says, security coin after Matthew Aston going down. The letters spelled scam. I couldn't let the guy steal from me because that would cause me pain. And if he gets caught, he experiences pain. So God warns us to keep us from experiencing pain or causing pain. And sometimes, God as a good father will even discipline us appropriately, healthy and to an extent. And the mercy of God I'm being honest, probably lasts longer than I'd like it to sometimes, as long as it's for other people. 
If it's for me, then God, give me all the mercy. But God might discipline us. For example, one in Hebrews 12 talks all about the discipline of God. But one example of God's discipline is that of husbands toward their wives. Because in 1 Peter chapter 3, the word of God tells us, and Peter writes, that husbands need to honor their wives and treat them gently. And if you don't, your prayers might be hindered. That means if we as husbands don't treat our wives well, if we don't treat God's daughters well, he's not going to listen to our prayers. That's a problem. And I've noticed it in my own life. Sometimes if Jerick and I are fighting or if I'm upset at something and I have a role and responsibility in this altercation and in in this interaction, well, I suddenly feel like I can't hear God anymore. Now, I'm a child of God. I need to hear my father. And on top of that, I'm a pastor that stands on a stage and speaks to people. What do you think happens when I can't hear God? Nothing. It's kind of the point. Because my father is disciplining me. And I have to go and own my fault, own my plank before God. And after that, then I can hear his voice again. Every time discipline of God, the power of God, the fear of God keeps me in line. And because of that, fear is a good thing. I want to experience a fear that keeps me from experiencing or causing greater pain. And in that way, the fear of God and the love of God, they're not just right next to each other. They actually go hand in hand because it's the love of God that motivates the power of God. It's the love of God that causes the fear of God. And now we see the relationship between them. And now we can reach the conclusion that the fear of God is an awareness of God's power and an appreciation of God's love. These things are not contradictory. In fact, they're better together. They happen at the same time ideally in equal measure, and we can grow in both at the same time. We can grow in our awareness of God's power, and we can grow in our appreciation of God's love. And as I sat there on the plane, growing in my fear of God, I realized that the fear of God is similar to the ocean. Now, the ocean, it's beautiful. Beautiful sunrises and sunsets, beautiful waves. Nothing can cause relaxation to come to the human soul quite like the sound of waves on a beach gliding over the sand. I've got so many memories of being at the beach and having fun with my family and friends. The ocean has fed my family many, many times, even here in Vegas because we have awesome seafood. The ocean is wonderful, and we can be awe and appreciate the ocean's beauty, but at the same time, the ocean There's a picture here. This picture is of Waimea Bay. Some of you are familiar with it. And I used this picture for a reason. Because I almost died at Waimea Bay playing in the ocean. The, I was the youth pastor at Pearlside at the time. And we were on summer break. And the youth wanted to go to the beach. And we looked at the surf report. you got to look at the surf report before you go to the beach. So we said, okay, waves, six to eight feet. Actually, it might be wintertime because... So the waves are about six to eight feet. 
like, okay, that's manageable. Everybody in this group is a strong swimmer. Let's go. And we drive. And it's a long drive. So we drove about 40 to 45 minutes. We spent about another 20 to 30 minutes finding parking. And we park and we walk from the parking lot across the grass, across the sand, over the hill to look down at the bay. And we realize those waves are not 6 to 8 feet. That's more like 8 to 10. And that's a big difference. But whatever. We drove too far not to swim. Let's go. So we take off our shirts and we go into the water and we're having a blast. We're swimming, we're bodyboarding, which you swim and you coast with the waves and it picks you up and you ride on it and you're just carrying it. We're just having a blast and there are no regrets until this one wave comes. And I swim with the wave and I'm paddling and I'm paddling and it feels like I'm going to catch it and it's going to be like a really awesome one because this wave picks me up and then it sucks me in. And now I'm in the middle of this big wave getting tumbled head over heels backwards like a sock in the mud. And I'm being tumbled and I just know like, okay, I'm in trouble. Hold on. I can't fight. It doesn't matter how hard I'm kicking and swimming. I'm out of control. I'm overwhelmed by the power of this wave. Eventually this wave feels like it picks me up one more time then it slams me against my back on the surface of the sand. And when I'm slammed on my back, I feel some of the, weight, the air in my lungs is pushed out of me. And I don't know if it was an instinct or the spirit of God or both at the same time that told me, don't breathe in right now. Because I'm under this wave. It's keeping me down, flat against my back. And eventually I feel like the pressure releases, so I start to swim up. I'm starting to swim up, but I can't break the surface of the water just yet. So I'm kicking and I'm swimming, and I'm kicking, and I'm swimming. And finally, I break the surface of the water, and I take a deep breath. <sighs> then I start to fight for my life. And then I start to swim, and I swim, and I swim until I feel my feet hit the sand. And the waves are pounding, so I have to keep swimming. And eventually, I get out of the sand, and I walk on the beach, and I walk up back this hill, back up this hill, and I sit down, and I look at the water, and I have that thought, I almost died. Because if that wave had thrown me on a rock instead of the sand, I could have died. Or if that wave dropped me on my neck or my head instead of flat on my back. Or if I had breathed in when my instinct and the Spirit of God told me not to breathe in, I might not be here right now. So I was in fear of the ocean at that moment. And we should have a healthy fear of the ocean. But now whenever I look at the waves, whenever I see the ocean or the distance, I have the experience of both. I'm aware of the ocean's power, but I still deeply appreciate its beauty. And that's how I feel about the ocean. And that's how I feel about God. So as the worship team starts to come, I believe that this balance, an awareness of God's power, and an appreciation of God's love is how we experience the fear of God. And we're going to read one last scripture together today, and I, see, I think we see it in this scripture. And it's a very, very important scripture, arguably the most important scripture in the Old Testament, and without debate, one of the most important in the Bible overall. Because in this scripture, God actually introduces himself. 
And after God does this, the Old Testament repeats what God said about 27 times. So in Exodus chapter 34, Moses is meeting with God on the mountain. And Moses asks God, God, let me see your face. Let me look upon your holiness. Let me see you face to face. And God says, no, you can't. I'm too powerful. I'm too holy. I'm too good. But I will allow you to see my wrath. So God takes Moses and he puts him in a rock formation to obscure his view. And as God puts him there, he begins to walk. And he passes before Moses and Moses looks at the back of God. And then as Moses is looking at God's back, God begins to speak. And this is what God the Father himself says to describe himself. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression from sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Here we see God highlighting two facets of himself. These are not the only sides of God, by the way. All of us have more than two aspects to who we are. God is no different. God is even bigger and more complicated than we are. But in his very first introduction, this is how God Almighty, in his infinite wisdom and understanding, perceives it fit to reveal himself to mankind. And he says, I'm going to tell you about my love, abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and sin, gracious and merciful and slow to anger. This is who I am. And at the same time, God says, but I'm just and I'm powerful and I don't forget wrongdoing. And it's good that God is just. And so here is God himself. The very first time he introduces himself to humanity saying, this is my love and this is my power and these two things are connected and this is how you relate to me. And as a matter of fact, they're, they're not just connected. It's like they're, like they're a scale. And on this scale, one side is weighed heavily down because on that side is the love of God. The love of God is for thousands. The reason why I put the word generations in brackets back there is because in the original Hebrew, it's not there. And it's fine to include the word generations because that's implied when you talk about the father's children and children's children. However, if you include the word generations there, you must include it on both sides. So on one hand, we have the love of God that is good to thousands of generations. And on the other, we have the fear of God, the power of God. And he'll be just to three or four. But if you remove the generations, we have the love of God that is for thousands and is weighty and heavy and strong. And the power of God that's there to three or four. And in these two things together, we see the fear of God. Because we are aware of God's power. But we deeply appreciate God's love. And if that's what it means to fear God, to be aware of his power, and to appreciate his love, then we should
every aspect of our lives. The awareness of God's power and appreciation of his love that touches everything that we do. Touches the way that we think, the way we interact with people, the way we spend time with him, the way we live on mission for him. It affects the way that we serve. It affects the way that we think about God. And it affects the way that we worship. God, we thank you that because you're a good father, the fear of you is a good thing. And you teach us to distance ourselves from sin. And I thank you, Lord, that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's like you make us brand new. So Lord, I pray that you would make us brand new in this moment. I even pray for a holy and supernatural deliverance from the bondage of sin in different people's lives. In the name of Jesus, we declare that chains be broken in this moment, that people would be set free, grudges that were held for a long time with deep roots like weed be uprooted and cast into the sea. In the name of Jesus, we declare that bondage to sexual sin and perversion be rebuked in the name of Jesus. We pray that pride would lower itself now, that anger would be removed from our hearts and that we'd be slow to anger like God the Father, that pride would leave and that we'd humble ourselves like Jesus did himself on the cross. Lord, thank you that you distance ourselves from sin and you make us more like you. And now, I pray that because we deal things that offend you, we would get to experience the greatness of your love. Lord, I pray for a fresh move of your spirit in our lives. Pray for a fresh move of you in our church. And I pray that the world, the world, the church, and everyone would have renewed fear of you. This, this awareness of your power with the appreciation of your love. In Jesus' name.